It's good to have you all here this morning. Like I think sometimes we just so quickly just kind of dive in and we get going and we get through this hour and 15 minutes or so. And let me just say this, like if you're somebody that's new here or maybe someone that's kind of trying to figure out who Cornerstone is, like we are really thankful that you're here and we hope that you feel like a guest, but my heart is you wouldn't stay guest. My heart is that you would encounter King Jesus, Jesus Christ, and that encountering him, you would become a part of this spiritual family. And so it's so good to have every, every last one of you here. Those of you that are the old timers, I'm glad you're here too. And so just what a, what a privilege it is just for us to gather this morning. But what we've been doing as a group is we've been studying through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And I think what's so, been so powerful for me, and I think just as Christian and I have prayed through this particular letter that we've been teaching through, is that really you would encounter this thing that just keeps coming up over and over through the book of First Thessalonians, which is hope. And I'm not talking hope like in a wish or a dream. I'm not talking hope like in this deep desire you have, but it's, it's not hope in something or in someone out there. It is hope in Jesus Christ. Like our whole heart has been that you would find just, and this is the way we tried to define it, just as that confident expectation in God's proven faithfulness and the desire for the good, not the good you may think you want, but the good God has promised in the future. I think of any time right now, I'm just thinking about in my own ministry life that we've needed hope. We've always needed it, but it just seems to come to the surface. This world is even crying out for hope. And so what we get to do as we study through the book of 1 Thessalonians is we get to be reminded over and over again why we have hope. We have hope because not only did King Jesus win, we're gonna celebrate this next week in the death, burial, resurrection. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross and was raised from the grave, he was declared the victor. In all of our lives in here, like Albie, she was a testimony to it. In her life, Jesus is winning. In our lives, those of us that know Jesus, Jesus is doing, pulling victory into our lives. And let me just tell you this, there is coming a day where the king will be announced fully in front of all of creation. King Jesus will win. We live in that kind of hope. And so that's what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to work through just this reality of what is it. And last week we started talking about, well, how do we experience that hope? Or what Christian kind of brought to the surface for us in in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, how are we built up into that? How do we become those people of hope? And we talked about this relationship between leaders and, and followers. And the way I tried to craft it based upon the text and based upon kind of all of 1 Thessalonians is we're a spiritual family. That means that the leaders he kind of had this reference to, like spiritual parents and, and those that were following or seeking to be brought into the, uh, into the understanding of who Jesus is were kind of like spiritual children. And it wasn't meant to demean. In, in other places, he talks about this idea that spiritual leaders might be shepherds and the people that are following might be sheep. It was just trying to convey a picture because the picture that he was trying to convey is of one group of people, these leaders that give their lives up for their children. They take their advantage, they take their power, they take their authority, and don't use it on their own behalf. That's how leaders do that are in the world. They they use their power and authority to gain more, their prestige, their finances. But he says, no, these leaders that you will see amongst you, you'll know them because in this upside down kingdom of Jesus Christ, they won't be asking for their feet to be washed, they will be the ones that are washing feet. 
And then he asked for then those within the church that were these followers, these spiritual children, then to esteem them like good parents, to bring honor to them, not because they're worthy of honor, not because they have money, not because they have power, not because maybe they have prestige, anything like that, but because in the upside down kingdom of Jesus, don't act like the world that gives esteem grudgingly or gives esteem because they have this this lauded position. We give this esteem, he says, in love. He's talking about this upside down kingdom that works so differently. Now the thing that everything was working towards that we tried to get to is this idea of peace or us becoming the people that God intends us to be. And I was confessing to you all last week and I'm sorry about the kind of confession moment. I just decided to be real with all of you that I'm trying to figure this thing out. But in the midst of all of it, the hope that we have is not in our capacity to suck it up and get it done and all the other ways that we think we're gonna accomplish something. But he finished in verse 23 with this idea of the God of peace himself. He took their eyes and just thrust them onto the great king of peace, the one who peaces in him, the one who grants peace to his kiddos. And then we talked about this idea that this sanctifying, us becoming the people God intends us to be, he intends to do it, not just kind of in us, he intends to do all our soul and our body and our spirit. He intends to change all of us. And if you ever doubt that he can do it, this is what we kept trying to repeat over and over and over again as we ended the, uh, ended the service. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We can entrust our our lives to the God of the universe who is faithful. Now, one of the questions though that probably came up in their heads, which should have come up in our heads is, okay, but how does this happen? What is it that takes place that kind of stirs it within the body and this relationship with this faithful God who will surely do it? How does this take place? And I think by the time you get to verses 16 through 22, what we're gonna look at this morning is that Paul had this idea of how the church was gonna do this by how the church gathered together. Now, on so many ways, when you first look down at this particular text, you're probably gonna miss the fact because it just kind of, it seems to have within it kind of this list of expectations that Paul puts forward. These commands that he kind of calls them to, and some of it is just because within our Western culture, we tend to individualize everything. But if you go back into that particular time, they didn't. They saw themselves so much more corporately. And so I want you to kind of see out of this text is I think what he's actually calling them to or prescribing for them, not just describing what it looked like at that particular time, but he's going to lay out for them what it should look like when you all gather together because there are certain things that need to be practiced, certain things that need to be rhythms of who we are regularly in our lives so that we can be shaped and molded into King Jesus, so that there can be peace, so that we can encounter this God who is faithful. Now, the reason that I say that, just so you can kind of know where I'm kind of going, because I don't want to just kind of come up here and say, you know, hey, just accept what I say. I want to kind of show you a little bit. Let me just say from the outset, I'm indebted to a guy named Ralph Martin, who's a scholar that kind of looks back at how early church worship happens. He's a guy that's helped me kind of see this reality within this text. Another guy named Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar that has spent tons of time wrestling through kind of how the biblical text works. Another guy named John Stott, who's a phenomenal theologian that came from the UK. I know much, not, not much great comes from the UK, but he was one of them. And if you're from there, you know, I love you. Oh, your wife's not here today, so I can't say anything, but... Um, 
I think the thing that he's trying, the, all three of these guys were trying to argue is this is what should happen when a church normally gathers together. Now, one of the ways that we know that, and again, I've always kind of joked about this whenever we've talked, talked to text, Paul was from the South. Paul was true, like, old school, like, South. Because all of his letters have within them this tone of plural. He, you'll see this, like, y'all rejoice always, y'all pray without ceasing, y'all give thanks. Maybe in California it's more, hey, you guys, or you, know, you gals, or whatever. There's this way in which, though, he's trying to convey this plural sense to what he's talking about. But it's not just that this thing is written in the plural, because that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a worship service, but also when you look down, like into verse 20, he's going to talk about prophecy. And whenever we see prophecy come up within the New Testament, it happens inside of the context of a local church as they gather. Also, if you look down into verse 26, which I'm so excited to figure out how to kind of work this out within Cornerstone, is that when they gathered to worship together, they had a practice of a holy kiss. I've just learned how to start hugging. There ain't no way we're gonna start kissing each other, just so you know. But that's what they would do when they would get together is this family, not a, not a, you know, we tend to think of it romantic. It was very much a family kiss that they would give to one another. I remember when I first came to know Jesus, one group of followers of Jesus were working out this reality and I showed up at their worship service and as they show up, it's like all the people kissing each other. And again, I'm a brand new believer and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And that was in the middle of Nebraska, by the way. <laughs> but also in verse 27, anytime Paul would write a letter, he intended it to be read publicly when they gathered. And so kind of the tone of, of we're going to find within 16 through 22 is not necessarily primarily about us alone. Now, these things can be applied to ourselves individually, but more importantly, these things are meant to be applied as when, even right now, we gather together. So in order for us to be the people God intends us to be, in order for us to have this peace that we talked about last week, in order for us to believe in the faithfulness of God because he will surely do it, Paul gives them these prescribed, these intended, commanded practices that the church is supposed to keep doing over and over and over again. And here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to see why. Why is it so important that we gather together every Sunday? Is it just something we do that, you know, kind of stinks we're going to miss the opening of the Masters this morning? Do we even do it on Super Bowl Sunday? But there's something about just the regular gathering. I don't care if you're a home church. I don't care if you're a church our size or maybe one of the mega churches that are out there. Is that God wants these things to be a part of our practice because in some way, in a very powerful way, it causes us to be the people that God intends, not just individually, but collectively. So here's what I want you to do. Look down in verse 16, and let me kind of see if I can't start unpacking a little bit of this so that we can understand how all these things come together. Now, when you look at 16 through 18, you're gonna notice that it's speaking to God. There's a way in which when the church gathers together, they're supposed to speak to God. So you're gonna see that the first thing is there to rejoice. The next thing he talks about is there to pray. Then he talks about thankfulness, but all of that is to God. Then in 19 through 22, it's how God speaks to us. So in this first part, we can see this. If you look down, this first practice that Paul prescribed that he commanded for us to do was to, in verse 16, rejoice always. 
Now, this particular word, rejoice always, is one that kind of we, we throw around, I feel like, within Christian circles. But in many ways, we don't, we don't sometimes always know what does it mean to actually rejoice. Well, when you look at the whole Bible, oftentimes this word rejoice is connected to this idea of praise. In other words, we have seen an evidence within the character of who God is. We see his greatness. In fact, the songs that we sang today, and I didn't work with Billy on this, but all of them actually were intended to allow us to see the greatness of God. And as we see that greatness of God, what is intended now for God's people to come out of us is this idea of rejoicing. It is the response to praise, to seeing the greatness and the grandness of God. And Paul says, I want that to be always present within you. Now, what's so cool is this rejoicing that he's talked about is not connected to our circumstances. This particular group, as we've studied them, you know this, it was a church that was undergoing severe adversity, that they were being pummeled on a regular basis, not just from people they didn't know, but they were being pummeled on a regular basis from their friends and their family and their coworkers, their neighbors. Their faith in Jesus was constantly being bombarded against. And Paul's whole point is, is, in spite of your circumstances, get together, get your eyes off yourselves, get your eyes off your circumstances, and place them on to what is the greatness and goodness of King Jesus, and from that, rejoice. Be blown away by the character of God. And not just individually, but one of the things the church is supposed to do regularly is to keep that in front of you at all points and in all places, keep that hope in front of you in such a way that it stirs within you the desire to rejoice. One of the ways that I would say it is, is that I'll never forget, I got taken to my first Pittsburgh Steelers game. You knew God was there. <laughs> Amen. But as the game's going, and this was in Indianapolis, Indiana, I was, I was there to speak at something, and a guy took me. And the Steelers on the first play drive down. And here's the thing about Steelers fans. There's always more Steelers fans at a stadium than the actual home team. And there were the five guys around me that were all Steelers fans. And when they scored, and we saw the character of the Steelers, we rejoiced. It's this reality of identifying something that is true and noble and good. And that is our response to it. Now, I say that in many ways because I think it's important that we get this, is that the root of joy is not in our circumstances. That's so important. And I get all of us are coming in from different things this week. Last week, I came in as the person that wasn't doing so hot. Maybe you're that way this particular week. It's not based upon our circumstances because our circumstances don't dictate joy. Now, let me see if I can kind of help us through that to kind of some, look at some examples of what I'm talking about. Inherent within what it means to be one who is filled with the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit that comes out, it's not inherent to us, it's something that's given, given to us, is love, joy. We aren't by nature people that are joyful over the right things. We tend to find our joy in circumstantial things, whether or not the Steelers can score a, a, a touchdown or not. Trust me, we, on the next play, the Indianapolis Colts started, scored a touchdown, and because my joy was tied to my circumstances, I lost my joy. But here's the reality, though. Because our joy is found not in a thing or the capacity of a team to score touchdowns or in our circumstances, but in Christ, joy is always there. 
Now, not only that, when we get to like Romans 15, Paul, he, he lays out this amazing reality in Romans 15 of just the greatness and the goodness of Christ in which God, uh, Christ is this one who becomes the perfect example of what all people are called to live. And then he looks at these Gentiles, those that aren't Jewish, that have now been engrafted into the people of God. And he wants to just have them stand in a place of wonder that they've been brought into this family. And then in a prayer for him, this is what he does. He says, may the God of hope fill you with joy. It's not inherent to us. God has to do it within us. And peace, what we talked about last week, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says to them, you may abound in hope. One of the jobs of the church is to constantly gather together to help one another to get our eyes off of ourselves, to put the greatness of God in the person of Jesus Christ in all, all of us, to make him the true treasure, and then to stir us to rejoice. Now, there's been more many mornings I've come in here, like I said before, I have not wanted to rejoice However, you've had this probably before in your life as you just started to be here and as this reality of God is placed in front of us over and over again, we're reminded that our troubles are completely different than the insufficient or the constantly sufficient reality of God. That's why we sing the songs that we do. We constantly wanna just put the greatness, even if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're sitting here today, my hope is that by us as a group, putting the greatness of God in front of you, seeing the goodness of Jesus, that something will start to stir and happen inside of you as we sing these songs, as, as we work through God's word, that will draw you to him. That you will see that your circumstances do not provide that opportunity to rejoice. But there's something so powerful here that the Spirit gives this fullness of joy that I believe God's people are intended to encounter. So that's the first one. When we make Christ our treasure, oh, joy is sure to follow. And look down at the next one. Verse 17. He says to them, now, the other thing I want you to do is pray without ceasing. The idea is, is when you gather together, and we've already had, I think, three different prayers this morning. Now, I'm not going to ask you, but how many of you, when we started to pray, had a checkout moment? It happens to me all the time. In fact, I went and preached at one church one time, and they were working through the order of services, and they were talking through prayer. They said, and this prayer time will be a transition to you going and preaching. And I looked at them, and I said, prayer is a transition? The beauty of what prayer does is it expresses in this moment our inability because we are not sufficient, but God is sufficient. It says what we've been saying in verse 23 and 24, our God is the God of all hope. Our God is faithful. He will surely do it. It's this expression of a heart that proclaims to the whole congregation as we pray over one another and as we speak these words in all kinds of prayers. I don't care if it's thanksgiving, an intercession. I don't care if it's supplication, this begging of God. I don't care if it's just sitting here still or thanksgiving. As we begin to pray and announce our dependence upon God, God begins to do a work. I think what he's talking about in this particular case is as the church gathers together and the heavenly father that we're talking about is the one who now we are stating together that he is the only one that can provide the means and ways of anything that's going on in this world. Prayer starts to remind us that our hope is not in government. 
It's not in who gets elected as the next president or Congress. Our hope is not what happens to the financial markets. Our hope is not in our, our, our spouse. Our hope is not in our, whether our kids have a great week or not, what I kind of talked about last week. Our hope is not found in all those different things. What he's trying to do is again to take our eyes off of our current circumstances and to be reminded that we have a treasure in Christ. When we pray, it's not just a filler, it's not just a transition. And it's this act and reminder of constant dependence upon God. It's not intended to be, checked, to be checked out of when somebody starts to do it. I would say this. I think almost in some ways we have to look out at us as a congregation every once in a while and go, okay, don't check out right now. This isn't a transition. This isn't filler. We are doing this right now and something absolutely miraculous is gonna happen as we pray and God hears us. He may not change our circumstances. That's how most of us go to prayer. Prayer is not intended to primarily change our circumstances. Prayer is intended to change us. And so as somebody declares the greatness of God as we come before him and say, you are the faithful God to him, it changes our perspective. And as God changes our perspective, he then begins to change us so that we see that our treasure is not in all those other things. Our treasure is in Christ. And he says to them, I want this to be unceasing. I want you to pray all the time as you guys get together as a local group of people. Now, there's one more that's important here that I looked down when you look down in verse 18. And so if you got your Bibles, you can go there. Along with thanks, or along with, excuse me, rejoicing, along with prayer, he says to them in there, I want you to give thanks in all circumstances, everything. I want you to thank God no matter what in all circumstances. Now, notice he doesn't say for all circumstances. There are so many circumstances that I don't think we are intended to be thankful for, but we are thankful that in spite of those circumstances, our God is in control of all things and will walk us through those circumstances and life might get rough, but the promise is, is that we will be transformed into different people according to James 1, 2 through 4. As we walk through those difficulties, we will be made different and therefore we can be thankful or as James talks about it, connected about what we were talking about earlier, we can have joy. This thankful heart, I think, is so important for the local church because I think if we don't do this on a regular basis, we get spoiled. Not only spoiled, let me say it this way, I think we get spoiled rotten. I think we become entitled. Ooh, that dreaded word. I'm not entitled. People under 25 are. There's something about thankfulness that when we look at the work of God and we thank him for it, sometimes we don't always get it, but that practice finally reminds us, oh yeah, that's right. God is good. See, sometimes when you come in here, I don't know if you, how many of you grew up with, with families like this. I grew up with a pretty big family. And at Christmas time, we would get together and there was always the dreaded great-grandma gift. <laughs> Socks, underwear, <laughs> an orange, you know, grandma and grandpa have just given you, you know, GI Joe with the super Kung Fu grip that would take off, you know, whoever's head. And then great grandma gives you underwear. 
And mom had to look at you and go, go say thank you. (laughs) Woo, thank you. Why does mom do that? She doesn't want us to get spoiled. And this is why on a regular basis as we gather together as God's people, he says, practice thankfulness. Not, Not fake it until you make it, by the way. It's not that at all. It is the intentional reality of knowing that God is good. Again, even when I don't feel like it at the moment. It is knowing that God is good, putting my eyes on the treasure of who Christ is, knowing that in Christ are provided all things for life and godliness, and then choosing in that moment to be thankful. There's something so powerful when a church gets together to give thanks and then when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about in Psalm 136, one, this idea that, that God, by his nature, is always good to us. He's always this one. His love endures forever for us. And so Paul wants us to give thanks. This is a true fact, regardless of how you feel. In Philippians, I really do believe Philippians is a book that was probably also, and again, this guy that I was rock, talking about, Ralph Martin, and you know if a guy's Ralph, he's serious, so this must be really good. But Ralph Martin in his book talks about the fact that probably this passage from Philippians 4 was not intended to be an individual practice, but as the church gathered together, he says, don't be anxious collectively about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do this practice, and I promise something will supernatural happen amongst you in which that peace that Paul's been talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5 will well up within you, and you will be made into the people God intends you to be. This thankfulness in all circumstances is huge. Now, let me pull these all together. This whole thing now about rejoicing, this whole reality now also about praying, this whole reality about giving thanks, I think tie together at the very end of verse 18 when he writes this statement, give thanks in all circumstances for this. Well, what's the this? This rejoicing, this praying, this thanksgiving, this practice ongoingly as a group of people is the will of God. He wants you to keep doing it. It's a prescribed practice. Keep doing it, but not just in anyone, in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you caught it, but in each section, I kept saying this word, our treasure is Christ. Keep Christ at this forefront. Keep reminding each other as you gather together, again, whether you're in a home church or a large church or anything in between, keep that together on a continual basis. That's why he uses the word always and he uses the word continually or unceasingly at all times. He just says, keep this in front of you because this is for your own good. But the question I had in the back of my mind is is why? Okay, so why is it so important to keep Christ as the treasure in front of me? I think the answer to it is found in Matthew 6. Jesus is talking about this idea in Matthew 6 about storing up your treasures in heaven. He's kind of referencing money at that particular point. But then he says something extremely profound in verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, look at that, your heart will be also. 
What does that mean? There are so many times that I've come in here on a Sunday morning and I know in my head that Christ is my treasure. I know it, but I don't feel like it. But his whole point of doing this in Christ is, is that I come in and I put Christ out there at the tre- as the treasure and the powerful reality is, is that the heart follows after. You choose to put Jesus out there in that way. You as a group, put him as the treasure. You laud him, you praise him, you pray to him, you thank him. You do that and the spirit of God then is gonna do a miraculous work in, in amongst you and though your heart didn't feel like it, your heart gets brought behind to the point now where every facet of you sees and knows and experiences and has that reality within us that Christ is our treasure. I think it's what Paul meant when he wrote in in, in Ephesians 5.18. He he talked about this idea of don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Well, how are we filled with the Spirit? Well, here's his answer. It's very much in line with 1 Thessalonians 5. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, Giving thanks always for everything to God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as we do this, God's people, we're filled with the Spirit. It's powerful. I don't know why you came here this morning. I really don't. But did you come with an expectation that as we rejoiced and as we prayed and as we thanked God, your heart was gonna be drawn to encounter the king of the universe. That's what he's saying here. In fact, you know what? I'm not gonna go on to the next section. I'm gonna change things up a little bit. I need, can I get the band up here? Could I, and I have two elders ready for this, just in case I wanted to do this. You, you can stay down the elders camp, but I need the band up here. Here's what I want you to do. Some of you came in and, and you weren't ready to worship the king. My hope is now you're ready. Some of you came for the 10 a.m. service and missed, or you caught everything, and then some of you came for the 10.15 a.m. service and you missed some things. <laughs> We've kept pictures of you, just so you know. We're gonna put it on our website because we believe shame is such a great way to motivate God's people. Here's what I wanna do, and I wanna put this into practice now. I want, as we sing maybe two or three songs, I don't care, you can choose whatever songs you want. I want you to look at those words and I want you to see Christ as the treasure. Sing, rejoice, be thankful. We're gonna have two elders that are gonna come up at different points and I'm gonna have them pray over the congregation before we walk out here, maybe two songs. Hey, two songs. The Spirit's moving me to say two. But as these guys pray over you, listen. Take in what they're saying. Hopefully you'll be able to say amen. These guys are godly men, they know Jesus. Embody what they're saying. And then from here, my heart is, is that you is that you hear their dependence upon the great God of the universe will long to go out and experience Christ as we exit here. And so I'd like everybody to stand up we're gonna sing two more songs. I know you got one at the end and I don't know which one you're gonna do. Sorry about my slides. We're gonna use the rest of them. But is everybody ready? Okay, no playing around here anymore. 
I've just told you that God does a powerful, miraculous work when we choose to do these things. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, would you listen intently and just be open to the reality that our God is who he says he is. He is the great creator of all things. He is worthy to be praised. Our God is faithful and he will surely do it. He is worthy to be prayed to. Our God is doing a work in all of our lives. He is accomplishing his purpose. He's a worthy to be thanked. And so pay attention to what we're doing right now. Practice it. Let's see the spirit of God move amongst us right now as we worship the king. And all God's people said, 